Hello, and welcome to this epoch, which will be an old school history bro flying solo effort, just from me. And we're going to continue the story of the English monarchy. Last time we finished off with the death of Edward I, Edward Longshank. So we go straight into the age of his son, Edward II. And Longshanks had had four sons. He'd had loads of children, loads. Like he had 10 daughters, only five of which survived. And he had four sons, only one of which survived. So right there, you can see the infant mortality because all these children died in infancy or in childhood. Um, you can see that infant mortality in the 13th century was very, very high. Very, very high. I mean, it's very high even up to the 19th century, but you know, in the early Middle Ages, uh, only the strongest children really lived to adulthood. And so Edward II had had older brothers, and Alfonso, remember Longshanks' first wife was a Spanish woman, Eleanor of Castile, uh, and a John and a Henry he had three older brothers, all of whom died. So when Longshanks himself finally died in 1307, it passes to his fourth son, who's you know, still quite young, in his 20s. And uh, he was weak. Edward II was sort of famously weak. When you look at the king lists, you've got three Edwards in a row. Edward I, second, and third. And Edward I and Edward III are both very strong kings, military kings, martial kings. And Edward II just isn't. Um, he's very weak. So his, his reign is sort of bookended by his father and son. But to begin with, it wasn't necessarily very, very obvious that Edward II was going to be weak. So he was physically large, like a good Plantagenet, like his father. He was physically big and strong, apparently, you know, quite handsome. His grandfather, Henry III, had had like a drooping eye. <laughs> and Longshanks apparently had a bit of a stammer. And Edward II didn't suffer from any of those things. So apparently he was sort of, you know, good on a horse. And... Uh, and, you know, there was nothing sort of physically, obviously, wrong with him or anything. Um, and people, to begin with, when he was a young man, or even during the first few years of his reign, um, didn't, necessarily, didn't necessarily have a massive problem with him. But it became clear fairly soon into his reign, all the accounts seemed to agree, that he was just a bit weird. Like, his actual personality was a bit weird, a bit odd. He may have looked like a king, but he didn't really behave like one. He didn't like war, sort of at all, wasn't interested in it. Didn't really like tournaments and jousting, even though he probably could have done it. Like I say, he was very good on a horse, apparently. But he didn't enjoy the joust, didn't enjoy tournaments. Now, for an early medieval king, that's weird, that's odd. Most people in society will sort of frown on that. We're told that he, he, liked to spend his time doing sort of very unkingly things, like digging ditches or rowing. Kings don't dig ditches or row or thatch roofs. He liked to thatch roofs. And also the company he kept <laughs> apparently was a bit odd. He didn't really like to spend lots or all of his time, with a few exceptions, which I'll come to, in the company of his nobles and knights. He preferred the company of common people, carriage drivers, jesters, sailors, barge masters, carpenters, diggers. 
again, to sort of the nobility or the, the, the well-to-do, the baronage, that was just odd to them, you know, a bit more than odd. It was wrong. It was, it was gross to them. So people had question marks over his personality, and it seems that he didn't, Edward II, it, being king didn't sit well with him. I think that's fair to say. He's probably quite unhappy in the role. Some, some kings, some monarchs, some emperors seem to revel in it. They love it. It's like they were born to do it. Um, and others, you know, are very, very uncomfortable. Edward II seems to be one of those people um, that probably would have lived a happier life not being the king. But then such is the lot of a hereditary monarch. You don't really get to choose. If it falls to you, you're sort of obliged to do it by duty. Um, but perhaps Edward II um, could have spent his time, or he would have spent his time doing other things. He wasn't interested in the business of government particularly. He wasn't interested in, you know, the job of balancing books and things. He wasn't, apparently wasn't particularly interested in, you know, building factions about himself, making his political position safe or anything like that. He liked to sort of fritter away his time with his, with his favourites. So that's one of the first things to mention. One of the biggest takeaway headlines for the rule of Edward II is that he's always accused of having favourites and allowing his time and energy to be dominated by just a very small number of people that he favoured. And again, when you're an early medieval king, you need to sort of be seen to not have massive favourites. I mean, it's okay to have favourites, of course. It's okay to have an inner entourage and things. But when you exclude powerful and rich men, you know, when you do it to the point of excluding extremely powerful people that you need to have on side, well, then it becomes a problem. The first one, the most famous one, is a chap called Piers Gaveston. Any account of the life and reign of Edward II, especially the early part, is inextricably linked with the story of Piers Gaveston. So when Edward II was young, about 16, while he was still only Prince of Wales, while Longshanks was still alive, uh, the son of a Gascon knight was sent by Longshanks, actually, to be part of his entourage, this Piers Gaveston, who was about the same age, I think maybe a year or two older, but about the same age. And it seems that Edward II, over the next few years, fell in love with him. Now, I use that word love <laughs> because that's what the chroniclers and accounts at the time said. Whether it was sexual, whether they, you know, homosexual partners is something else. A lot of the chroniclers, a lot of the histories say yes. Some say no. Some very good historians say no. There's actually no evidence, contemporary evidence at the time of that. So before I go forward, I would like just to to address that, whether they were or not actually partners, sexual partners. Um, I would say, I don't know, probably yes, but there's a good argument that no. So let me, let me tell you a bit about it. Edward II himself in a letter called Gaveston, our dear and faithful brother. So that's one of the first things to mention. Nowadays, in the 21st century, it seems that men can't be extremely close, close friends without being accused of being gay. 
Now, it's not the case. You can have extremely close friendships between men, which aren't homosexual. And anyway, in the pre-modern age, certainly in the medieval period or the ancient world, um, that was even more the case, I think. Um, you can certainly have a bond, a deep bond with another man, which isn't gay. And it may be, it may be that Edward and Gaveston, it was the case. Um, calling him brother, that he, some, some historians have said, no, it wasn't gay, it was, the, it was just such a close bond that Edward sort of basically adopted him as a brother. Um, I don't know. Um, I really don't know. I, again, if I had to put money on it, I'd probably say there was something there. But um, in the 1320s, one chronicler described it as, as an indissoluble love. Now, you know, again, love, especially in the early Middle Ages and the Middle Ages, doesn't necessarily mean anything sexual. Um, they quite often use the word love just to mean, you know, a, a, a platonic love, nothing sexual about it. However, you know, it is still a loaded word, even back then. Also, a covenant of constancy. Hmm. Now it is getting into a grey area, right? I mean, constancy, again, there's nothing explicit there, but it's an interesting use of, of words. Um, and we're told, again, a chronicler from the early 14th century said that their friendship was fastened with a knot. So here's the bottom line on it. There was no, there is no explicit evidence, contemporary evidence, that says they were gay or sodomites, sodomy. And let's be clear, in the early 14th century, sodomy was a very, very bad crime. It was heresy. It was heresy. Your soul would be damned for it. So it's not just like, you know, like today or, or even... At other times in history, in the 18th, 19th century, it might have still been illegal, but mostly it was sort of okay. People might raise eyebrows at someone like um, Oscar Wilde or something, but nobody really cares. You know, you know you're not going to be excommunicated and shunned massively, particularly. Well, anyway, in the 14th century, it was pretty bad, a pretty bad crime. So then you can make the argument that Anyone that was going to mention it would couch it in uh, ambiguous language. But certainly Edward I, Edward Longshanks, and Edward II's father-in-law never expressed any concerns that they thought that he thought Edward II was a sodomite. In the 1330s, so after the death of Edward II, the Bishop of Winchester, Adam Orleton, did describe Edward as a sodomite. Now, this is what history is all about, the study of history. This was after his death now. So then, again, there may have been political reasons, or he may have been able to speak more freely after Edward had died. Does that mean that his account of saying that you can give more credence to it? or less credence to it? Was it in the interests of people after Edward II had died to darken his name, darken his character? You could make arguments both ways. The fact that it was explicitly said relatively soon after his death, you know, for me, if you're gonna balance it out, uh, would lend itself to maybe there was 
a gay relationship there. But one great historian has said that, or more than one historian has said, modern historian, that the nature of the royal court in England in the early 14th century, 13th, 14th century, there was sort of no privacy. Um, that it would have been impossible to conduct any sort of illicit, you know, dangerous liaisons. Um, yeah, I mean, quite possibly. That rings true to me. That's one of the big reasons in my mind that would weigh it the other way, that there probably wasn't a, a gay relationship because, because of exactly that. How could they have kept it secret? Apparently, kings and queens quite often essentially had no privacy. They were sort of never left alone. There would be people literally in their bedroom while they slept. That's what they say about uh, Queen Elizabeth I, hundreds of years after this. Um, There's always questions over whether or not she was a virgin. She claimed to be a virgin until the day she died, the virgin queen. People said, no, she had, she had sexual relationships with all sorts of people. And some historians say, it's just not possible. There were ladies in waiting in her room 24-7. She was never alone, literally never alone. So some say that about Edward and Piers Gaveston. But nevertheless, in the 1390s, um, another chronicler said that he was too much given to the vice of sodomy. So it is explicitly said there. But again, bear in mind, this is quite a long time after the 1390s by that point. And perhaps they're just taking the account of, of Adam Ollerton. Apparently, one last thing to say about Adam Ollerton, the Bishop of Winchester's account, is that later, but during his own lifetime, someone said, wait, didn't you accuse the late king of being a, a sodomite? You explicitly said that. And he backpedaled, apparently he backpedaled. He says, no, I was talking about, I was talking about somebody else. I was talking about Hugh Dispenser. Um, 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 it wasn't Edward. So anyway, there's a grey area. A lot of historians, most historians, do say that, that they, they were in a gay relationship. But there is, I just, and I, I would probably, I suppose, again, if I had to put money on it, agree with that. But there is a strong argument that they weren't. It is totally possible that they weren't. If I can quote from the Oxford historians, Charles Oman, he wrote this, quote, Seldom did a son contrast so strangely with his father as did Edward of Carmarthen with Edward the Hammer of the Scots. The mighty warrior and statesman begot a shiftless, thriftless craven, a coward, uh, who did his best to bring rack and ruin to all that his sire had built up. That's what I said at the beginning, you know, there's a, a massive contrast between the three Edwards. Sort of strong, weak, strong again. Um, a bit further down in the text, Oman goes on to say, The new king was neither cruel nor vicious but he was inconceivably obstinate, idle, and thriftless. So that's twice he's called him thriftless. Charles Oman insists Edward II was thriftless. He goes on, um, It has been said of him that he was, quote, the first king of England since the conquest who was not a man of business. That was a quote at the time. Oman himself goes on, Hitherto the descendants of William the Norman had retained a share of their ancestors' energy, even the weak king Henry III had been a busy, bustling man, ready to meddle and muddle in all affairs of state, great or small. But Edward II took no interest in anything. The best thing that his apologists may say of him is that he showed some liking for farming. 
again, it's not just weird to the 14th century mind. It's wrong. It's sort of, what are you doing? You know, we really need you at the very least to spend your time watching tournaments. Okay, you don't have to take part like Richard I or something, but at least pretend to be interested in the right things. But Edward II didn't. He sort of couldn't bring himself to even pretend. And his relationship with Piers Gaveston was extremely annoying to everyone at the time. Again, whether it's actually gay or not is one thing. But just in general, the whole relationship rubbed basically everyone up the wrong way. Because it seems, all the accounts agree, all the historians agree, that the degree to which Edward took his favouritism, or Piers Gaveston, was way beyond anything else. He sort of lavished titles and money and gifts on him to kind of an absurd degree, again, at the expense of everyone else as well. Now, to throw fuel on the fire, Piers Gaveston himself rubbed everyone up the wrong way. Apparently he was very, very arrogant and didn't try to ingratiate himself in any, pos in any way with the other powerful magnates, the baronage. Historian Christopher Lee, not to be confused with the actor Christopher Lee, the historian Christopher Lee said of Edward II that he was, quote, a feckless prince whose love, whose obsession for Piers Gaveston, a son of a Gascon knight, was to bring about anarchy and war. It goes, it goes way beyond the realm of, of anything reasonable, this relationship between Piers Gaveston and Edward II. Um, and people just thought he was arrogant and haughty. The word haughty comes up a lot, this Piers Gaveston. That he did, he, he did nothing to stop everyone around him from hating him. Well, this sort of thing just can't go on forever. I can give you a line or two from Sir Winston Churchill in the History of English-Speaking Peoples. Churchill said, quote, Edward II's reign may fairly be regarded as a melancholy appendix to his father's and the prelude to his son's, son's reign. He was addicted to rowing, swimming and baths. He carried his friendship for his advisers beyond dignity and decency. On the death of Edward I, the barons succeeded in gaining control of the mixed body of powerful magnates and competent household officials called the Curia Regis. Uh, they set up a committee called the Lord Ordainers, who represented the baronial and ecclesiastical interests of the state. Scotland and France remained the external problems confronting these new masters of government, but their first anger was directed upon the favourite of the king, Piers Gaveston, a young, handsome Gascon, in, enjoyed his fullest confidence, the king's fullest confidence. His decisions made or marred. In other words, Piers Gaveston had the ear of the king so much, they weren't just friends, he, the king would listen to him, take his advice. So he's a political player. He's not just his friend, stroke possible lover. He's, he's powerful, very, very powerful. He can make decisions. He can. He can get the king to make decisions. That's not going to do for sort of a lowly knight to, be, to have that much power. It's not, going to, it's not going to fly for too long. Churchill goes on. Uh, there was a temper which would submit to the rule of a king 
but would not tolerate the pretensions of his personal courtiers. The Baron's party attacked Piers Gaveston, politically, at first, politically. Christopher Lee goes on. As Prince of Wales, Edward had become infatuated with Gaveston. Immediately, upon immediately becoming king, Edward made his young friend Earl of Cornwall. The Earldom of Cornwall was one of the most powerful, richest earldoms. So he's raised this almost nobody. He wasn't a peasant. He came from sort of the knightly class, but he wasn't a blue-blooded, landed gentry type. He now is. He's made him an earl. Got to be very careful in the Middle Ages, early Middle Ages, doing things like that, because the existing earls and barons um, are not going to take kindly to uh, an upstart being allowed into their ranks. So Edward made Gaveston an earl. Um, Lee goes on. Uh, when the king went to France to marry Isabella, which he did straight after becoming king, really, uh, Isabella, the 12-year-old daughter of Philip IV of France, he left Gaveston as keeper of the realm, effectively ruler of England. So now he's made him a regent in all but name. To mention, actually, earlier, before Longshanks had died, about a year or two before Longshanks had died, Edward and Gaveston had had a falling out with the royal treasurer, Walter Langton, the royal treasurer, Walter Langton. And Longshanks had take, taken Langton's side and actually briefly exiled Gaveston and briefly put his own son completely out of favour. Um, quite quickly, he was allowed back into favour, but they never forgot that. They never forgot that Piers Gaveston, Gaveston tried to meddle in the, you know, fully meddle in the affairs of government. Um, and so upon Longshanks' death, the first few things Edward did, Edward II, what he immediately did was stop the war with Scotland, turn around. There was a campaign going on in Scotland, or just about to, to stop that just turned around, headed south um, to bury his father, to get himself coronated, to get himself married to a very, very young woman, girl, child, um, and to make Gaveston the Earl of Cornwall. And then very soon after that, make him, at least for a, in, on a temporary basis, the regent of all England. So where people already the baronage, most of society actually, had question marks over Edward and Gaveston's relationship. As soon as Edward becomes king, he dials it straight up to 11. And everyone can see, oh no, oh no, he's got this, this favourite, this, this possible homosexual lover who's, who's far too powerful, immediately far, far, far too powerful. Nobody likes it, as I say, it rubs everybody up the wrong way, basically. Um, so Edward goes to France to marry this Isabella. And another thing to say, that even if they did have a gay relationship, Edward II nor Gaveston, actually, were exclusively homosexuals. They both got married and had children and had female mistresses and lovers. Edward II had an illegitimate child. He had, he had children of his own, legitimately and illegitimately and other female lovers on top of that. So, um, so there you go. Christopher Lee goes on to say, 
that at the king's coronation on the 25th of February 1308, it was Gaveston who carried in procession the crown and the sword of St. Edward, St. Edward the Confessor, uh, classic coronation regalia. It was Gaveston who was described as being dressed more like the god Mars than a mere mortal. Other accounts I've read said that Gaveston was dressed more ornately, more richly than the king himself. Apparently, in Westminster Abbey, they put up the, the coat of arms of the king and Gaveston equally. Bit odd. And that Gaveston had pride of place at the feast directly after the wedding, next to the king. And the king lavished all his time and energy and attention on Gaveston, not on his new wife. Again, to everybody looking on, it's weird. It's weird. It's too much. It's over the top. Christopher Lee goes on, quote, After the coronation, Isabella's kinsmen returned to France. They took with them a story that Edward loved Gaveston more than his queen. The movement against Edward grew. At its head was Henry, the Earl of Lincoln. He'll come up again and again. Lincoln, the Earl of Lincoln. The barons would stand for no more of this domination by the king's favourite. An ordinance was presented to Edward, demanding their dignity be returned to the crown. Indiscretion was one thing, but allowing the object of that indiscretion to become a powerful figure in the governance of the realm was quite another. In other words, Gaveston must be banished. So there's a period here in Edward's early reign um, where it's just a struggle between, a power struggle, a really very real power struggle between all the barons and Edward and Gaveston, where how to sort of get rid of Gaveston to try and exile him. So for a few years, there's sort of a back and forth at more than one parliament, two or three, four parliaments, where they sort of politically paint Edward into a corner, force him one way or another to exile Gaveston, to get rid of him. Lee goes on, quote, At the April parliament, the barons forced the king to agree to their wishes, but Edward would not, would not bear to lose his friend for so long. He appointed him as lieutenant in Ireland. So they made him legally sign a document exiling Gaveston to France. So Edward agreed to this. And instead of following through on it, sends him to Ireland. There was, there was all sorts of wars going on in Ireland. So just sends him to Ireland instead. Now again, the baronage won't stand for it forever being treated a bit like fools. Edward's trying to treat them like fools. So Edward appointed him lieutenant in Ireland, and when the time came for his sailing from Bristol, Edward was there to see him off. But even this temporary exile did not settle the aristocracy's long list of grievances. When that list was presented in 1309, Edward agreed to reforms, but in return demanded the recall of Gaveston. So the Pope gets involved in this a bit, and there's some wrangling, there's back and forths, there's deals struck with the Pope about allowing Langton back, because Edward, as soon as he became, more or less soon as he, as he became king, the old royal treasurer that they'd had quarrels with, Walter Langton, um, he'd, he'd almost immediately seized all Langton's estates and money and in, imprisoned him. The, po the Pope didn't like that. Uh, so there were all sorts of deals struck with the, with, both with the papacy and with Edward's own baronage 
you know, look, if I concede this, if I allow you to raise taxes this way and I'll release Langton and all sorts of things, actually, fairly complicated set of political um, deals were done so that they would let Gaveston back. That's how much he loved Gaveston. <laughs> Does seem to be a love, whether homosexual or not. Um, just still, just completely out of all proportion. Lee goes on. The Lord's Ordainers, a committee of 21 lay ecclesiastical and lordly representatives, wrote the 41 articles which have become known as the Ordinances of 1311. The Ordinances, among other things, declared that the king was not to leave the realm without the consent of the barons, was not to appoint a keeper of the realm, as he had done with, with Gaveston, um, and was not to appoint whomsoever he wished as senior officials, and that all officials had to take an oath to uphold the ordinances. Perhaps Gaveston was all the things the barons said he was, but he was also a scapegoat for Edward's weaknesses and lack of kingship. Gaveston was exiled yet again, this time to Flanders, and yet again he returned. So again, for, talk about 1311 there now. So you can see there's a back and forth. There's a real, there's a real power struggle, back and forth, ding-dong power struggle. Gaveston's in and out of favour, exiled and then returned, you know, a couple of times. Um, it just seems Edward is prepared to spend a fantastic amount of political capital on Gaveston. On his favourite there. Churchill continues the story. Compelling him, Gaveston, to take refuge in the north, they, the Lords of Daners, pursued him. So when he comes back, Gaveston, um, there's another parliament, and Edward's still not playing ball, and eventually Gaveston finds himself quite literally on the run. Well, there's a whole period before this where Edward and Gaveston had raised a, a, an army, taking it north, because all the troubles with Scotland and uh, Robert Bruce hadn't finished. You know, Edward Longshanks dies in the middle of a campaign, and Edward, upon becoming king, had just turned around and abandoned that campaign. So Bruce and the Scottish question is still afoot. To watch the full video, please become a premium member at lotuseaters.com.